is uh, affirming your refuge in Sangha. <coughs> sangha allows us to uh, that particular uh, refuge is, is a is a way we can reflect on our personality, our sense of individuality, and let that die, let it cease, that sakaya ditti problems and conceit. <clears throat> so that you, if you don't have refuge in sangha, then and you've not surrendered or committed yourself to that to that refuge, because that's sangha is a very practical refuge, isn't it? It's it's the the practice and cultivating the path, and for us it's the the using of the vinaya. If you don't do that, and you, you more or less go out on your own to teach Dhamma or to <coughs> assert yourself as an independent individual, uh, then you, the subtleties of uh, conceit and that are never really witnessed to. Because <coughs> you can justify <coughs> going out and becoming independent and becoming a meditation teacher or going out and and uh, serving humanity all these are kind of grand and noble things to be doing in their quality not to despise such endeavors that uh, they can also be filled with uh, conceit and pride and self-views and you tuck a block with that. So the, the Sangha is like being a bhikkhu, isn't it? You really, you really uh, see how, you know, you can, you feel resistant, you feel, I mean, living under the discipline of Vinaya and under convention and restraint, uh, and you have to oftentimes uh, learn to obey people who don't know as much as you do. Or learn to give up your own view, even though it might be better than somebody else's. Uh, it's not a competition of views or who has the best ideas, but it's the willingness to reflect on on that in us that wants to assert ourselves and and uh, compete and and uh, develop uh, a sense of of. Uh, continue that sense of being a, an individual being and a personality. <coughs> a refuge in Sangha means it doesn't, whether you're teaching or not teaching or whether you're <coughs> called Ajahn or not or you're, you're <coughs> uh, abbot or you're junior monk or Dasasila, Dara or whatever, these aren't important anymore. They're, these are merely the conventions or reflection. They're not personal identities. The whole thing goes off when you try to become somebody, become a ajahn, become abbot, become senior, become somebody of importance, some authority, somebody that that uh, has to uh, preserve oneself in some way as a separate. As, as some kind of status or some kind of position where in Sangha you 
you're, you're looking at that. We have this out of necessity of because of uh, because there's uh, natural. I mean, when you have more than one, you have to have. Then there's two, isn't it? And three. So there's always one first, there's a second, third. It's the way things <coughs> happen to be. It's just an ordered uh, sequence of things that we have to accept within the restraint and restrictions of a physical situation. But it's nothing to identify with, nothing to. <coughs> To attach to, or to envy somebody else because they might be first, and you, you, you want to be first, or you feel envious of someone who's first, or high. If you're if you're not in a position of being high, then you you resent those who are high, and you attach to your position as being somehow on a personal level as not being as good maybe as somebody whose conventional position is high up become a teacher, isn't it? There's a real trap of the mind to identify with being a teacher, with being a senior bhikkhu, a senior nun, being somebody who has position. These things are merely uh, for conventional expediency only. They're not, they're not to be positions one takes. But you can see that any attachment, any, any, any conceit you have about the position you're in, because you'll feel suffering from it. You, you'll, the suffering will come from your attachment to being junior or senior or whatever, bhikkhu or siladhara or anagarika or whatever. You, if you're attached to it in any way, either like being attachment means both extremes, doesn't it? liking it or disliking it, then you then you suffer from from that attachment. The refuge is in Sangha, so that is the Supatipano, Ujapatipano, Yaya Patipano, Samiji Patipano. That that doesn't designate any whether you're senior bhikkhu or abbot or ajahn or junior or or newest monk or the last anagarika. Uh, this doesn't, isn't, that isn't the issue in Sangha. That, but Sangha allows us to, to reflect on, on the, the, the delusions we have about ourselves as individual beings and personalities, people. It's a, it's a, like a mirror for us. That's what. That's why the third refuge is sangha. So, to be able to see what we, what we create in, about ourselves. So in, if we take refuge in in somebody else, or in, in the teacher, or to take refuge in in our own views, or in you know, all kinds of different refuges, we could assume we could take. But those refuges tend to throw us outside, don't they? We're, we're separate. Sangha is, is, a, is an inclusive one, isn't it? It's not somebody. It's not a, this person or that teacher. 
and even uh, in in its ultimate sense of sangha of the four quarters, it's a kind of amorphous sangha. Because we're not even trying to take refuge in our sangha as some kind of our sangha is better than somebody else's sangha, <laughs> and that's another kind of conceit, isn't it? If we think our sangha here at Amabati is better than than somebody else's, it's another kind of conceit. You're just personifying this sangha as something, you know, as as if it were somehow, you know, it's just another kind of conceit that, that we develop. So Sangha, or the Sankantanangachami, see only uh, not as our Sangha, Amravati Sangha, and Forest Sangha, and Ajancha Sangha, and all that kind of stuff. See that all that is just the additions, the kind of filigree that, it, that clutter around things. But, but the, uh, the Sangha as, as not as, not as any kind of defined group. Sound of the four quarters, I mean, it's right, four quarters. <laughs> <coughs> that includes everything, doesn't it? Anybody, Supatipano, Ujapatipano, Yaya Patipano, Samiji Patipano. Then mainly for, for you to reflect on the conceit attachments you have to to Theravada Buddhism, to Thai Buddhism, to Ajahn Chah Buddhism, to Ajahn Samedo Buddhism, to to Amrabhati, to Chitras, to to uh, all this kind of stuff. Uh, whatever view and opinion you have about it uh, is Anicca Dukkanata. It's not not. Uh, we don't have we don't have to make judgments about others or we're not the judge we're not the one who <coughs> who uh, uh, has to decide about who's pure and who isn't and whose sangha's best the best and who's the worst and all this that's we don't we're not called upon to have to make those kind of judgments it's a it's a wonderful relief isn't it to not go around having to have opinions and form judgments about others about oneself doesn't just that point when I discovered that what a relief because I was always judging everything before I always when I lived in Thailand you go to another monastery <coughs> they're not as good as us then <laughs> <laughs> you'd uh, and then you'd go to another monastery when I was at Bungwai one time this was a few years ago. The monks, uh, Jayasaro and his monks were going on about, here they were with Ajahn Pasna, and they were going on about, oh, we just visited Ajahn Banswad up in Sukhanakon. What a fantastic monastery. They're going on like that. Right in front of Ajahn Pasna, you know, they're actually saying, you know, it's, we think it's better than this place. Because you know, how, how could the new monk feel any other way if, it, if one of the monks that's supposed to be in the know is is raving about the superiority of some other monastery so then <clears throat> that starts this idea of, of comparing one monastery with another 
the idea that somehow one is better or slightly more something or other than another or lesser. So I pointed it out very strongly one evening. Everybody <laughs> <I> stopped it. <laughs> that's just not skillful. Ardenban's monastery is, is no doubt a very good monastery, but to always be looking at the monastery that's away from you rather than reflecting on where you are here and now and the way things are, you miss the point. You're no longer supadipano. You're, 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 not, you're not with the scene you're in. You're, you're thinking about some other place that somehow maybe being better than, than the one you're in without seeing what you're doing. Because that's another, that's how the mind will go. You get tired of the same place. So then another place looks that much more attractive, isn't it? You've been here for a while, you know everybody, and I think I'd like to go to Thailand. That's where you can really practice in Thailand. And goes on and on like that. If you don't see how the mind will will uh, will grasp that, it's like marriage, isn't it? You get get married well, after a few years. The person you married is no longer very nothing new, is it? Same old boring person. <laughs> then everyone else looks much more interesting and exciting. Because, you know, you, if you've lived with somebody for a while and they, you know all about, you, you know all the little sayings and this and that, and you think it's just boring. And somebody you don't know looks much more interesting, exciting, fascinating. But maturity comes through, through not, not following that kind of view. It's very immature, isn't it? to always want somebody, something that fascinates you and interests you. You know, if you're married and you say, please fascinate and interest me all, all, all our life, dear. <laughs> when I married you, I expect you to completely kind of fascinate me and, and entertain me for your whole life. It's your duty. And if you don't do that, then I'm, I'm terribly disappointed. I'll look for somebody that can. <laughs> So, well, that's how oftentimes people get married, isn't it? They're expecting a kind of lifetime of, of interesting relationship, <coughs> fascination. We kind of make that demand sometimes on each other. Please entertain me. Please fascinate me. <clears throat> but it's when things don't when the, the maturity comes when you don't make that demand anymore, when, you, when you're no longer expecting a monastery or a person or somebody or something to come and fulfill you and to, to inspire you and interest you and make you feel alive and, and love you and, and boost you up and push you around and encourage you and, and all that. It's, that's still... The, that's still the Sakayaditi problem, isn't it? The self-personality do. Because personality needs to be supported by, by feeding, isn't it? 
you can't maintain it. You can't be a personality unless you you ha you have uh, you have to feed it, make it, and con let it consume like a fire. It has to be refueled all the time. Being a person, being somebody, being a personality. So I found images like uh, living uh, in the uh, just wherever for the rest of my life living at Wat Bap Hong for the rest of my life or living at Wat Nana Chat or Ban Suan Klue or, or uh, Kham Sa'i and the drearier branch monastery <laughs> <laughs> Kham Sa'i was about the had the worst food <laughs> Absolutely horrendous food it comes in. And, uh, well, even if Ajahn Chah sent me to Kamsi, I'd spend the rest of my life there until, with that attitude of not, not just seeking the, to distract myself and then get fed up or, or weary of something. Because there is a, in in the in the world there are so many things that look better and and are better maybe in a relative way uh, and and the desires of course always want to go there to have something better than what you have but remember as as uh, mendicants we're not after the best or or always looking for a better but observing the way things are and that's always where you are here and now. And Sangha is then as a refuge, is, is no longer dependent on whether you like everybody here or whether everybody lives up to your expectations or, or uh, whether you, you know, that, that isn't expected of you. We don't ask you that you should like everyone here. Well, I think everyone here is, is uh, trying to, try to exalt them in some way as being or overlook all their faults or not recognize weaknesses or flaws in people's characters and whatever but we're not making anything of it because the, it's Sangha rather than being a judge being someone who picks and chooses who makes your own rules who, who, who makes up everything for yourself and then then with that you throw yourself out of, of community you have to be you always have to be special, someone separate, special, an international meditation teacher or a, a special kind of person, special kind of being. As you, as Sangha, then you, the, you don't need to be special anymore. Even though situations arise where you're special, you're not, that's not what your refuge is. You're not being, you're not take, seeking refuge in being special. So that if you do like being special, you have a reflection for it. You can see when you are special it, and, you, and you really like it and, and you feel very attached to that, you have a reflection for that in Sangha as a, as a kind of standard for reflection, a mirror for that. And they're trying to really penetrate all the subtle forms of conceit and delusion that, it, that 
that we can perpetuate in our mind. The human mind is very complicated and convoluted. It can deceive, we can deceive ourselves so easily, so easy to do. And so this is where you, if you use the, the Buddha Dhamma as a, as a way of, of investigating that, you, you break through it. You, you, the subtleties of conceit and pride and all that are, are recognized. But if you don't want to do it, then that's fair enough too. This, is, this isn't a prison camp. You can go out and become an international meditation teacher if you want. If you think you can start a monastery that's better than this one, and, and uh, or you, you know, whatever you think you, you'd like to do, or you think how you can make things better, or that you know more, or that you don't, you don't want to be bothered with this, or whatever, if you're willing to look at all that as a Nietzsche Dukkanata, then you're, then that's true practice. But as soon as you grasp it, then of course you're pulled off into that realm. You're, you no longer feel in communion with the Sangha, do you? You no longer, as soon as you start playing with all that and believing it, then you're, you're outside. You don't feel like a Buddhist. You don't feel in communion. You've got to go somewhere else. You've, you've got to do something else. You've got to make things different. Your path is a different one. And all those are forms of self-conceit and self-delusion. And if you can see it and, and see all of that, that kind of thinking and feeling as a Nietzsche Dukhanata, then you're always developing the path of the, the Pawana, of the Eightfold Path. As soon as you, you buy it, or grasp it, off you go. <laughs> Onto your own path. <coughs> Doing, following your, your own view, your feeling. And, it's, and oftentimes those views are based on, on uh, well, very kind of righteous attitudes and even good ideas or, or high-minded ideals. It's not that it's like a gross form of conceit. I'm going to do what I want, so there. <laughs> I mean, most of us are beyond that, aren't we? Kind of childish uh, temper tantrum. I can do what I want. Don't boss me around. <laughs> but uh, we have to have very noble reasons for leaving. No? We have to have the highest kind of ideals to justify our separation from Sangha. So trying to get people to look at this sometimes very painful. To have to to uh, to look at that it can be very 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 painful. This is where the the just like in a marriage if you when you when it gets to the boring, dreary side of marriage, it's very painful to look at at all the kind of hopes, expectations, attitudes you've had. And, and it's easy to just blame the other person, isn't it? Your, your mate, your fault. You don't, you don't love me anymore, you don't. 
you used to buy me gifts and you don't. And <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And maybe it's true. Maybe, you know, those things are, uh, those things do happen. But, but yet, as reflection for wisdom, you're not, you're not, uh, we're not expecting, you know, a romance to be permanent or inspiration to be a permanent uh, attachment we have or need. This, this is a, a really, a, to me, it's a most rare opportunity to penetrate things. Being able to you know, think of the conditioned realm and anything we do in it is is always unsatisfying anyway. I mean, to to endlessly try to to make things right in the world and to try to make things better all the time and, and think that we could I could make everything better if I were prime minister or that I could if I were king of the world I could really organize it and, and set it up in a really right way. If I were... But then, in, when you understand the, the limitation and the uh, evanescence of this, of this experience of living in a human form, you, you lose that kind of idea of, of trying to create perfection uh, with the imperfect. More and more, it becomes really the only thing that is of, of significance is an opportunity to break through, break through delusion. Is that the, that's the whole importance, the aim, the purpose? They're able to, to no longer just go around trying to create uh, out of delusion or operate in this sensory realm with a deluded mind, even if it's for good causes. Because all of them, most of them, are very few forces that are just totally out to destroy and totally malevolent forces. They're, they're relatively rare, isn't it? Most, most evil and misery is done through good ideas, isn't it? Through, through high-minded ideals. We're trying to create equality so we murder off the aristocracy. They're trying to... Uh, uh, you know, trying to make things right by uh, by punishing your enemies, trying to uh, you know take sides with this group, and, and then by doing that, by the say taking sides with the underdog, underprivileged, and uh, then we we lose perspective, so we can be uh, we can be brutal and insensitive to to the other side. It's so easy to, if, if you're if you're kind of a egalitarian uh, idealist, uh, and then to take sides with the underdog. Here in Britain, that's what people do. Anybody that's being persecuted or or uh, is, is, things aren't fair, and minorities or stray dogs or whatever, that to take. I saw how easy it is to take the side of the underdog. You want to fight for the for the rights of those underprivileged beings, and by doing that, oftentimes we just develop anger and hatred toward the other side. 
And so we, even if we do anything, it's not really very good at what we do. It's filled with all kinds of delusions and, and bad karmic actions. We breed hatred and resentment in people's minds and blame others and, and responsible for, for giving wrong views and prejudices to people. Even in the name of, of equality or righteousness, then it, it's the good amount of good we do is, is also has to be considered that we also do a lot of bad things in, in the process. So the the priority is the enlightenment. So that we see clearly and we can then our actions are, are for the welfare of all beings not just for the side we prefer I remember in Berkeley in the early 60s the peace movement there you go to the peace movement meetings and pretty soon you're developing this this view that anyone who's not in the peace movement is a warmonger <laughs> So easy to get caught on self-righteousness. So you start looking at just ordinary people who don't seem to be all that concerned one way or the other. And you're actually looking at them as kind of irresponsible uh, ciphers in a system that are bringing around the end of, or bring, the, bring on a nuclear war. And you get so caught up in your own self-importance, blowing up your own ideals. Inflate them so that they just one becomes uh, <coughs> arrogant that way. So, go back to your contemplations of the teacher's side.